I just got back from a month-long tour over in Europe. A lot of sold-out shows, a lot of really well-attended shows. Just met so many nice people, so many folks that say they listen to this show. You know how much I love hearing that. I got a lot of stories to tell, but there's just no time for it here, so I'll try to maybe tell some down the road. But one story that stands out, while I was in Sheffield, my buddy Craig drove me around a little bit, and we drove by Joe Cocker's house where he grew up, and I didn't even know he was from Sheffield, but when I got home, I showed a picture I took of his house to Mangler, and Mangler said he remembers stopping in there a long, long time ago with Joe and seeing his old place. But Craig also drove me over to the spot where I played my first ever gig in Sheffield many, many years ago called The Boardwalk. It's a legendary rock club. It was originally called The Black Swan back in the 60s, and the locals would call it The Mucky Duck, and then it later became known as The Boardwalk. But it's most famous where on July 4th, 1976, The Clash played their first ever gig right there. And they were opening for the Sex Pistols. Just imagine being there for that. But the place is abandoned now. In my opinion, it should be a national monument. There should be a historic plaque or something out front. But the good thing about this is there's people like us who care about these sort of things and places like this. And one such person, a fan, put a note on the front door. It looked like it was held up with duct tape and thumbtacks, which is very appropriate. I'd like to read that note for you because I think it is timely, and I'll just leave it at that. I quote, The Clash were the living embodiment of the punk ethic. Politically aware and DIY, they were a blast of fresh air in a failing country that had forgotten its greatest asset, its youth. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on a beautiful fall day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Barry Mazur. Barry's the author of Meeting Jimmy Rogers, and he's the host of Roots Now Radio. You can listen to that show at acmeradiolive.com. If you haven't listened to episode 137, The Innovations of Ralph Peer, I strongly urge you to go listen to that right now. Barry was wonderful in that episode. He's nice enough to invite me over to his living room here in East Nashville. He's one of my neighbors. But Barry's just a wealth of knowledge, and I love sitting underneath the learning tree and soaking up whatever I can. I'm also a huge fan of Greg Brown, and I love the song The Train Carrying Jimmy Rogers Home. And it brings this romantic idea of that last train ride and the last part of Jimmy Rogers' life. And I realize that things aren't always like they're depicted in songs. Well, I asked Barry if we could 
tell the story of Jimmy Rogers' last days, and he was more than happy to play along, and I appreciate that. Here's Barry Mazur. My book, Meeting Jimmy Rogers, the subtitle is it, How America's Original Roots Music Hero Changed the Pop Sounds of a Century. And that may not be the way people think about the so-called father of country music, but he didn't even know he was in country music. (laughs) So, you know, kind of got hints towards the very end of his life. But, you know, these things weren't all kind of settled and clear yet. And he was a Southern vaudevillian who sang music from down home. And more of it was blues and vaudeville than it was what we would think of as country music, but some of it was. And they were trying to figure out what that would look like if it was mass appeal. So Jimmy was a pretty humble guy, the son from from Meridian, Mississippi, who was the son of a railroad section gang head, which was a guy who was in charge of laying out tracks and stuff. But... Contrary to the way it's the story sometimes, so from the age of 12, wanted into show business. And, of course, as you wouldn't in 1910, 1912, have the faintest idea what that would look like. How could you possibly get there? Some kid in Meridian, Mississippi, and this business is off in New York City where they record, you know, People like you see in the in in, 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 in the silent movies, you know, they're not radio. Yeah, they're the one we're talking about here. Um, and he, he, you get these records, and they come from some mysterious, magical place far, far away, and you don't know how to get from here to there. And, but he loved to do it, and he tried to do it. And, and, and meanwhile, he was, in fact, a brakeman and other jobs on the trains for years. And relevant to the story we want to talk about today, by 1924, which was three years before he was first recorded at Bristol, by Ralph Peer, and, and, and became rather rapidly in the months ahead a huge recording star. Um, he had already been diagnosed with tuberculosis, which was a rampant disease. It's not gone yet, I should point out to people. And there was nothing much to be done about it in those days. They did horrible operations on your chest that made it worse. Or they put you out in these, they put you out in a sanitarium and open air and rest. And uh, that was better because at least basically they were doing nothing. And some people survived it, and some people it was virulent, and they would die. Um, it had been a really romanticized disease. Think Camille, cough, cough, you know, elegant, <laughs> over crusty, until they thought it was like really artistic, special people got it. So they had, they'd had this like uh, cachet about it until they discovered that it was spread by, it was spread by, you know, you know, through the air by microorganisms in the 1880s. And suddenly it became, you know, trash addicts, stay away from them. It was, it was sort of shameful to talk about because it affected all classes still, that should be said. But poor people were more open to it for the same reason they're more open to all diseases because they're just, they have less resi- resistance and resilience by the nature of their situation. So he was already contracted this. And it was one of the reasons he was trying to spend more time in show business if he could, because he really couldn't keep up the train work. The train work was really bad for somebody in that situation. And But he didn't know. And the, the moment came at Bristol where they were calling for people from the area. He there. A few months later, T for Texas, Blue Yodel number one, becomes a smash million seller over time. And he's a star. 
and he was had the personality and the temperament to be ready for it. Working with Ralph Peer in the next five years, before he died, he was recording at a pace because he was Elvis large. That's what people have to understand, the way they related to him. This was a roots music here, was this new idea. He was one of us. He became a star, and he didn't hide it. He glorified it. He's doing songs that talk about Lord, which was not in the usual pop music vocabulary. (laughs) So the Mississippi accent stayed. It wasn't work away. The subject stayed down home. He recorded blues without any condescension or minstrelsy. So he, he was showing tough white boys all over the South, to put it frankly, but there were ways to sing blues that you didn't have to be imitative. And that was really important. In fact, and, and in fact, he was the first white blues singer that people like a Howlin' Wolf or somebody was like, was like openly fond of. And Wolf says his howl was based on Jimmy's yodel. And the yodel was, this is hard to explain across time, considered sexy. This was a new, close, electric micro, electronic microphone kind of situation. That's not the way people respond to yodels today, but it was the same as Bing Crosby going ba da ba ba. It was the same as a Robert Johnson jumping up into a falsetto. It was the intimacy and breathy and physicality of, of that yodel is what people responded to. So it was hot stuff in 1928, and it set off a craze of other people doing it. In those five years, he recorded at such a pace, because they needed to, and there was such money being made until the Depression hit, which wasn't that long after he broke with 28, you know, you got a couple of really great years here. And they were great years. And they put him in talking short films and on the radio and in the newspaper. He was a huge star. And the record sold all over the world, by the way, not just in the South. He recorded at a pace that was almost exactly the same as the Rolling Stones and the Beatles at, the, at their height in five years, which was, count the albums, it was 112 sides in five years, which is about what they did at their height in the 60s. So this was, you know, and, 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 and there was good reason. The bottom fell out of the market with the Depression hit, radio came, and he was still doing better than anybody else, but it wasn't so great. He appeared live incessantly, which is one of the things that his manager, publisher, and producer up here look for, you know, promote these records, get them to know you, which they did. He would never stop. Hundreds of dates a year. The travel had to have been terrible. Oh, and he, oh, yeah, it was. I mean, it was like, you know, localized from tiny little towns and movie theaters. And part of the reason he became what I was calling a roots music hero is the beginning of the Dust Bowl hit in 1930 to 31. And he and there were people start literally, quite literally starving in Oklahoma and places like this. And he and Will Rogers went out on tours together to raise money for these people. And it was often get them seeds so they can grow their own again and money. And the government would do nothing. The Hoover administration was saying, well, if we do anything about this, they'll just ask for more. This was Roosevelt took office with just a few weeks before Jimmy died. But at this point, They went out there and they did this, and nobody ever forgot that, including, say, Woody Guthrie, who saw him and apparently met him early on in Texas. But, I mean, this kind of thing is that you could be that guy. He was an unelected, like Will Rogers was, an unelected representative of the people that he came from. And he wasn't just a star. He was a hero to a lot of these people. 
And it was that kind of thing that cemented that. But just the fact, and, and so like Elvis later, they loved it that he was rich. He had cars and he had mansions. It, was the, it wasn't called Graceland. It was called the Blue Yodeler's Paradise. And he had Cadillacs and the suits and, the, you know, and by reputation, on you know, and not untrue, women and, you know, he was, a, he was, he was the Elvis of his day. And people loved it. It was one of theirs who got to be what they could only almost con not conceive of being. <laughs> so it was great. You know, like it still is when somebody does that. And I think people don't understand the country music audience to this day. And in some ways, the R&B audience, the relation to hip-hop artists or a Beyonce, they don't understand the love of somebody being that massively successful it's exactly that connection. I mean, it's kind of a dream. It doesn't do them much good. You know that, and I know that. <laughs> but, but it is, it is something that feels good, and it like shows you that like somebody did it, so it's not impossible. You know? So he was that guy, and now he's getting sicker. Tuberculosis comes in bouts. You have these really bad spells of hemorrhaging and bleeding, and, and, and you take the rest, and you come around, and he'd done it. And I guess what we're talking about today is what happened in his last months in his last year of 1933. He would have times where it'd get really bad, and he'd just have to stop. And he'd be hospitalized, or he'd be back home. And, you know, like, it's, it's, think about the way people related to people with AIDS in our time. There were times where people were terrified that they could pick it up. It wasn't that transmutable that way. You, you, it, it wasn't like you, people around you were going to instantly transfer it. But they were scared of it because so many people were dying of this thing, including middle-class people. I always point out that if you live, if you live in, a, in, 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 a, in a neighborhood where the houses have these so-called Florida rooms or California rooms, which are these screened-in porches downstairs or upstairs, that was there because their middle-class residents were sleeping out every night in a wicker chair on that porch. They were the same thing as, you know, somehow that was going to be a good thing. It wasn't really, but they did it on some better, better furniture than poor people did in longer camps. So I have access to his scrapbooks, his own, and it's day by day. Where was he? What did he do? Which was one of the hard things to come by because nobody covered this stuff in those days. You know, he could be in a big city and there might be pictures and in an interview he's going to be at Lowe's downtown. But in between... You know, he'd be in 50 Texas towns on one-night stands. I mean, he, he would do 200 dates a year, and the guy could hardly breathe all the time. Oh, by himself, by car. Yeah, by car, usually by just by his own car. And some of that time, when he first started, he couldn't afford that. That's when you hear the stories of him hoboing and this kind of thing, which were true. I mean, partly the hoboing, hoboing was not a tramp. Hoboing was kind of a semi-profession in those days. If he wanted, if he was doing a makeup gig working on the railroad, you'd hobo, <laughs> you'd, you'd ride the rods, like they say, under the train and get to the other end of the line because you could get a gig coming back. Well, how are you supposed to get there? So, you know, um, it was more complicated than he was just, but in those days, in the 20s, and he was already performing, he just wasn't recording yet before 27. Uh, it was, the transportation was any way you could. So we get to 1933. Now it's been romanticized somewhat, which is understandable because it's a sad story. It was time for his next recording session. It had been a while. 
his last session had been the summer of 32 and and it hadn't been all that much it was in new jersey and now it's now it's may 1933 and um his manager and producer ralph pierre's relation to rca victor records is changing he's on the process of leaving there as a as a producer but he's still a manager and publisher the record business is just in terrible shape. The, the, the whole, it's the height of the depression. We're like in May 33 here. Clubs are closing. There's no, there's no good live gigs to get. Jimmy, when he'd been playing live, they'd been dumps compared to where they'd been. And you're doing what you could. And he hadn't been well, so he wasn't around that much. And he had seen family back in Meridian hanging in Texas. And he wasn't well. Sometimes he had, sometimes he was under the care of a nurse who had taken care of a bunch of musicians around Texas. That this particular nurse was like good at that. And so it's got time for Peter. So, well, what about your next recording date? We have this contract. And in fact, they were negotiating his next contract. Jimmy Rogers' main interest at this point in life, which I think is completely understandable, is to rack up some more money for his family, particularly for his daughter, Anita, who's like 12, 13 years old now. And he doesn't know when it's going to be over, but he certainly knows he's not going to be around forever. And he's trying to record it. And, and Pierre told him, Ralph Pierre told him that, you know, we'll come record anywhere you are. They're not paying for location recording anymore. That had been cut out because it costs too much to travel. Like, we can't do it here. Just don't do it. So that had changed. But in Jimmy's case, he said, look, we'll come. We'll go wherever you need to be to do this because there was, this was still one of their acts that they wanted to re-sign. He said, no, I'm coming to New York. I've got a bunch of so songs. We want to do this. He said, oh, don't worry about it. I can do it. He didn't tell Pierre he was bringing a nurse with him. And he was coming on a ship from Galveston up to New York several days to come to do it. And he did have these songs, hardly of any, any of which he had really much of a hand in writing. I mean, he always had had access to other writers who wrote for him, and he, his job was to come up with the songs by any means necessary. Write them, co-write them, get somebody else to do it. Their names are on them. It's, no, it's not secret. It's, their names are on these songs. Some of them were Chin Pain Alley's guys. Some of, them were, some, of, some of them were friends of his, like Raymond Hall was a prisoner in Texas who co-wrote some of his songs. Um, they were all kinds of sources that he found. And he put together another pack, and he meant to come do them. And he comes to and he comes to New York, and the sessions are um, on East Twenty Fourth Street in Manhattan, which is the RCA, RCA studio there. And uh, he checks into the same hotel. There's a famous story of Jimmy showing up at the hotel in New York and after Bristol and telling Mister Pierre, "I'm ready for my next session now." <laughs> well, it's the same hotel, and it's changed its name, and now it's called the Taft off of Times Square. He checks in there, and they're going to try to do this, and it's it, and it's going pretty slow. His health is not good. They do about a day of songs. There's really only a couple songs from those last sessions in May '33 that people know well. One of which he showed up with the title um, "Why Don't Women Let Me Be Blues." This turned into Jimmy Rogers' last blue yodel, which everybody knows. Women make a fool out of me. And Mississippi Delta Blues is a pretty good is a pretty good song, but mostly those are not the highlights of his catalog. Those last sessions, but he wanted to get those songs in. So those 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 rights to the the money from the records, money from the publishing would keep coming to his family as long as he could do it. He had no reason to think this was the last trip. It was bad, but it had been bad before, and he'd bounced back before. So we can't say like he knew he was like doomed this week. He knew he was doomed, 
But when, not so clear. He came, and after a day or two, it wasn't good. And they arranged for him to take a break, and he actually went up to Cape Cod for a couple of days and to catch some air. He tended to feel better when he was near the seashore for a little. And you may have even seen pictures of the Rogers family and the Pierce family in bathing suits in New Jersey. The beach was a good place for Jimmy to go when he could do it. There's pictures of him in the beach in Florida in the 20s. He, would, he felt comfortable there. And he tried that for a couple of days, and they came back and they recorded again. And then they got to this last day of uh, May 24th, 1933. And it's real bad. And if you listen to those records, some of it's good. I mean, there's a, there's a song they called, uh, he called it Barefoot Blues. It wound up, he, he knew, I, I have images I can show you of a, no, of a ledger, a notebook that he kept of everything that he did. And he had it with him right up to these last days. And it has, it has entries right up to the next to the last day of what he was doing. And, and uh, he was calling it Barefoot Blues, but he knew that Pierre, they were going to call it Blue Yodel number something. He had Blue Yodel number question mark, which is like, what order did they actually release them in? So, but it turned out to be called Blue Yodel number 12. But, <laughs> and, and if you listen to that, it's probably the greatest guitar solo he ever recorded that he does in, 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 in just a couple of days before he died. But the, for the first time ever, you can hear lumbered breathing taking places on some of those last records. And if you notice, one of the things you can notice is his yodel starts to get extended, not because he's showing off, but because some of the notes he'd normally hit, because every yodel was different. Every single Jimmy Rogers record had a different yodel, which Ernest Tubb loved to point out to people. You know, there wasn't one yodel. There was lots of them in different ways, musically, side things, you know, whatever. But some of them are getting extended because he discovers he can't go high, so he does them longer. It's kind of jazzy. <laughs> it's like, it's just like, all right, well, I'll do this. And you can hear him doing it. And you can hear heavy breathing on some of those last records. There's also perfectly good ones, like women make a fool out of it. But sometimes it's not so good. And, and famously, the last day he's lying down on a cot between takes and cuts just to keep going, keep going. That's the image that sticks in people's head. They've often heard about the cot. And we can look at it that way. I mean, Jimmy was a hero to a lot of people. He's heroic to me, too, in a lot of ways. He really was a kind of rambler and rogue and all those other things. People like him to be this kind of, you know, badass outlaw. And, you know, it's like, but he genuinely cared about taking care of his family, particularly his kid. And he'd had, he had one baby daughter die. And so the one that was left, I mean, really mattered to him. Everybody says he loved that daughter. You know, that was no question. Whatever else was going on in his life. So that mattered. And it's kind of heroic to put up with this to do it. Um, he really didn't have to get on a boat and go to New York to do it. And he chose to That's for whatever right. reason. That's a personal feel. It might have been to prove to himself or others that he could still do it. He wanted the contract. Here's, here's one thing about that, which I got to see, which was not really known before my research for meeting Jimmy Rogers. Um, people hadn't been able to see this. In those last days, he wrote one long letter and three postcards home to his wife. And by the time she received them, he was dead. But these are the last handwritten thoughts of Jimmy Rogers himself. And uh, I saw these inside a vault in San Antonio, Texas, where some of the estate stuff is kept. And I uh, had to, like, sort of memorize them. I couldn't take pictures of these particular things, and I couldn't take notes, but I knew what they said. And um, 
part of this was like, if you want his mood, I mean, it was not the mood of somebody who thought today's the end and I have to reassure my wife. First of all, the reason, one of the reasons his wife wasn't there, she was taking care, she was nursing her brother who was dying of lung cancer. And Jimmy Rogers is writing home. She, she, she's, you know, he's complaining he wants to smoke. And Jimmy's, Jimmy's cards say things like, oh, let him smoke. I couldn't know he'll feel better for it. And he said, you know, we only got a couple songs done the first day. You know how slow Ralph is, meaning Pierre. So this is the tone. And the other thing that would, but the other thing was this money concern. The last day, Pierre was not there. He was in Camden settling a new contract for Jimmy Rogers. You have to realize that almost everybody was being dropped in Roots Music. They just couldn't make any money on them. He was being signed again, and what Pierre had worked for him would have been his next contract, which was moved from, from RCA Victor Labor Records to their lower-priced Bluebird line, which is where all the Roots music people wound up, even like, even like Glenn Miller as a Roots. But it was all the, all, all the non-mainstream music was on Bluebird. And the point of this is they sold for $0.35 cents a piece instead of 75 and poor people could afford them more easily if they stretched. So that would have sold more records, and Pierre had worked out a deal where his royalty was going to be the same, even though the records only took him 35 cents instead of 75. So he was excited about this, and he explains all of this to his wife in his last long letter home. It's going to be okay. Look, Ralph worked this thing out. And he did the last session on that cot, and he got in a cab. Pierre had this guy tending to his personal needs, and we know his name now. That took a little doing. We just didn't know half a name. His, his name was Castro. He was a very young man who was going to go on to be the head of the entire Latin division of pure music in years to come, Fernando Castro, and a controversial figure in his own right. The Latin craze to come would be partly under his hand. In the middle of the night, a call came to Castro because Pierre was down in New Jersey. A call came at Pure Music for at, at, at Southern Music, as the the firm was called at that time. The Southern Music that Jimmy was having an attack. He was in a room on the seventh floor of the Taft Hotel. He was hemorrhaging again. And he'd been through this before. And and Castro comes up and he's on his arms and he's saying, like he had on a previous occasion, you know, get me home to mother, by which he meant his mother-in-law. He meant get me to get me to Washington, D.C. I mean, this kind of thing. You know, it's like get, it's, it has always worked. Just get me out of here. Get me home and I'll be okay. I just need rest. But it wasn't so. And over that night of uh, May 24th, 1933, he died in Fernando Castro's arms. And the word went out. And as you know, then what ensued after that, Pierre had it, Ralph Pierre took charge of getting him back to Meridian, where he was going to be buried. And people visit his grave there. I have the distinct and kind of unworldly honor. Um, I'm also the, I'm the chief researcher and writer for the state of Mississippi Country Music Trail. And we now have this cast iron marker Kind of with my name at the bottom, you know, like who to blame. Right next to Jimmy Rogers' grave, showing his career and pictures of him and his family and what they did. But that's where they were sending him, not to Texas. That goes back to Meridian, where he started, and, and that family. And they put the casket on a train. 
the singing brakeman's train, and a friend of his, the engineer was the engine the engineer was a friend of his named Homer Jenkins. And coming from New York all the way south to Mississippi, but train by train by train, they blew the whistle, and thousands upon thousands of people came out to the tracks to see the train go by, which is what they did for Abraham Lincoln's body. So if you want to see what happens when you're a Roots music hero, and there were people who understood he was sick like that. They didn't entirely hide it. And they came out there to that train that day, and they watched him take him home. Did people meet at every, every stop along the way? They came out to the tracks just to watch? Yeah, yeah, everywhere, all the way to, all the way to Meridian. People didn't write about things like that. But his death was covered either immediately, first regionally and like the, the, the papers there and to Memphis. But within the months ahead, it was in Time magazine. It was in the New York Times. Some of them did better coverage than others. Some of it was condescending about drunken hillbillies. And some of it was better than that. But uh, the world knew that he had passed on and they continued to put out records after he died that he had left in the can. Like, I guess he basically had hoped. <laughs> Didn't know when it was coming, but you know they had they had them, and the records kept coming out, and uh, eventually there was a revival in interest, and you know I mean his reputation grew over the years. Like everybody had a kind of dip for <laughs> before the war and after World War II, it started to pick up again, and people his music went into Western swing, his music went into bluegrass, his. I mean, Mule Skinner Blues of Jimmy Rogers is the song Bill Monroe took off with. You can do this over and over. It, they used it in rock and roll. They used it in skiffle in England, which led to those bands. You can follow what happened to his music, the trail. And the, the thing about it is that when people would turn to Jimmy Rogers' songs, they had this great utility because he was crossing all these lines in the first place. It was jazzy. It was, it was country. It was bluesy. It was all these things you couldn't quite define. When artists in these fields cross over from one thing to another or do a career change, it's the perfect moment to turn to Jimmy Rogers songs. And when you look where a lot of those covers come, if you have a bluegrass guy who suddenly wants to rock and roll, if you have a rock and roll guy who suddenly wants to go country, if you have somebody who wants to figure out how to sound blues and not sound like a jerk, <laughs> white or black sometimes, the latter day, <laughs> They turned to those songs and those ways of doing them because they were kind of built for that. And that's never gone away. So the music, it turns out, has lasted. The songs have been really trusty. And um, people still, like you, still ask me this question. The first song I ever sang in front of people in an audience was, was Waiting for a Train. Ah. Yeah, that one's kind of indelible. I mean, it just goes everywhere. That's it. And, you know, why were you moved to do that song? I was four years old. And four my, years old. My uncle taught but you, it you to you had me. been taught it. That's, <laughs> it goes on. Yeah. I appreciate you inviting me into your living room. I appreciate you asking me these questions. It's just beautiful to listen to these stories. I really, truly appreciate it. You know, it meant a lot to me. And I've also spent a bunch of years of my life getting all this stuff down. So <laughs> it's going to keep meaning something to me. You know, kind of dedicated. Yeah, that's it. But thank you for being here. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Barry for inviting me over to his home here in East Nashville. 
You can listen to Barry's radio show at acmeradiolive.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.